Jeff's Midweek Bible Study, a verse-by-verse teaching through the Bible with Pastor Jeff Lassane. We hope this podcast encourages your faith, and now here's Pastor Jeff. Welcome to the podcast, and I invite you to join me now in Mark chapter 9. You know, many of us have had the experience of something enjoyable, like say, a nice vacation away somewhere, only to face the reality of returning back home to our normal routines of working a job, cleaning the house, and paying the bills. We might even find ourselves saying, well, back to reality. A a friend of mine told me that before she and her husband leave for any of their vacations, she makes it a practice to thoroughly clean their house so that when they return, they can come home to a clean house and not worry about having to do all that. And I think it's a nice idea, but there's still all that dirty laundry from the trip, along with bills to pay and weeds to pull. I returned home from vacation one time to discover that a pipe had leaked in our guest bathroom, flooding the bathroom floor. That was definitely a back-to-reality moment. Just going back to work after vacation can be a harsh reality. As someone said, my first day back at work inspired me to book my next vacation. (laughs) I think we can relate to that. Another person added, they should sell sympathy cards for having to go back to work after vacation. They would probably sell pretty well. As a Christian, perhaps you've enjoyed a nice weekend away at a church retreat, or perhaps you attended a Bible conference and then had to face the reality of returning back home to all sorts of spiritual attacks. In years past, I would attend week-long Bible conferences at The Cove, that's the Billy Graham Conference Center in beautiful Asheville, North Carolina. I actually had attended about a half a dozen of those conferences always when Pastor Warren Wearsby was the conference speaker. The conference center is located in hundreds of secluded acres. It's spread out among beautiful forest hills. You know, to get away like that, surrounded by such natural beauty, along with other believers, while engaging in rich Bible study and enjoying relaxation, well, it was truly a mountaintop experience. But After each conference, it was down the hill and back to reality. As we come back to Mark chapter 9, we're going to see this reality play out in a dramatic way. Peter, James, and John had just experienced the transfiguration of Jesus on a mountain. And oh, by the way, Moses and Elijah were also there talking with Jesus. Talk about a mountaintop experience, and as I shared in our last podcast, Warren Wiersbe described the transfiguration as the greatest Bible conference ever held on earth. But as we'll read here momentarily, it was time to come back down the mountain and back to reality, which is our message title. Waiting at the base of that mountain was an intense spiritual attack. But even before that, we read this now, picking up in verse 9 of Mark chapter 9. Now, as they came down from the mountain, that would be Jesus, Peter, James, and John, uh, he commanded them that they should tell no one the things that they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. 
So the disciples kept this word to themselves, questioning what the rising from the dead meant. And they asked Jesus, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and told them, Indeed, Elijah is coming first and restores all things. And how it is written concerning the Son of Man that he must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I say to you that Elijah has also come, and they did to him whatever they wished, as it is written of him. Well, we'll pause our reading right there. And as Jesus and those three disciples were coming down the mountain after the transfiguration, he told them not to tell anyone what they had experienced until after the resurrection. That's because the heart of Jesus' ministry, which is the heart of the gospel, his death and resurrection, had not taken place yet. Listen, for Jesus, the Mount of Transfiguration was on the way to the cross, but for us, the cross is on the way to the Mount of Transfiguration. What I mean is today we take up the cross as believers and follow him, and then very soon we'll see Jesus in all of his divine glory when we make it to heaven. Thankfully, the disciples did what Jesus asked them to do, as we read in verse 10, that they kept this word to themselves. And then we read that they were still questioning what the death and resurrection of Jesus meant, which illustrates exactly why Jesus told them not to tell anyone about the transfiguration until after the resurrection when they would finally and fully understand. As many of you know, between the four Gospels and the first chapter of Acts, uh, along even with the first, uh, 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, we learn that Jesus spent 40 days on the earth between his resurrection and his ascension back up to heaven. A couple of the more obvious reasons for that was to demonstrate to his disciples that he was truly alive, along with giving them final instructions for their commission of the gospel. But another reason why Jesus remained with and met with his disciples during those 40 days before he ascended was to help them, I think, to connect all the dots. And we see this, whether he was speaking to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus or meeting with the disciples in the upper room in Jerusalem or communing with them at the Sea of Galilee. Jesus used those 40 days to help his disciples fully understand and comprehend the meaning of all the events that had taken place. Well, here now in Mark, as they continued down the mountain, the disciples asked Jesus in verse 11, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? That was actually a good question, and the timing of it makes complete sense. They had just witnessed the transfiguration of Jesus, and Elijah was there with them. And with that, the scribes, who were the ones that interpreted the Old Testament word of God, they taught that Elijah would come before Messiah arrived. So think about it. The disciples had already confessed Jesus as being Messiah. Now they had just seen Elijah. So they were asking Jesus to help them to connect the dots for all of that. You know what? I'm so glad the disciples asked Jesus this question because it also helps us to understand. It also reminds us that while the gospels are biographical, they're also theological. The final prophecy of the Old Testament is God speaking through Malachi and saying, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children 
and the hearts of the children to the fathers, which is to say he will bring widespread repentance. So then, please follow along with me on this. The Jews were not only awaiting the arrival of the Messiah, they were also anticipating the coming of Elijah first to prepare the way for the Messiah. In fact, the Jews firmly believed three things about Elijah, that he would come before Messiah arrived, that he would lead the people into repentance from their sins to prepare the way for Messiah, and that he would anoint the Messiah. So in answer to the disciples' question here, notice two important things that Jesus says to them in response. First of all, in verse 12, Jesus tells them, Indeed, Elijah is coming and will restore all things or prepare everything for the coming of Messiah. And then secondly, in verse 13, Jesus tells them, But I say to you, Elijah has already come, and they did to him whatever they wanted. So Elijah is indeed coming, and guess what? He already came, and they rejected him. Obviously, we're wondering what Jesus meant by this, and fortunately, we don't have to speculate, because Jesus explained exactly what he meant in other passages. Let me read to you first from Matthew eleven fourteen. You might want to make a note of that, Matthew eleven fourteen, where Jesus had been talking about John the Baptist and the importance of his ministry, and then Jesus said, And if you are willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Now, let's not misunderstand this. Jesus was not saying that John the Baptist was, you know, Elijah reincarnated. Reincarnation is a fantasy, not a fact anyway, but especially since Elijah had never died. Instead, Jesus was saying that John the Baptist fulfilled the prophecy of Elijah given in Malachi 4. Now, you might ask, well, how do we know that Jesus wasn't saying that John the Baptist was actually the person of Elijah? Very simple. When John the Baptist was preaching and baptizing at the Jordan River, we read in the early chapters of the Gospels that the religious leaders went to him to check out his ministry, to see what he was doing, to find out who he claimed to be. And that was actually part of their responsibility as religious leaders. So them going and questioning John was actually perfectly valid. In John chapter 1 then, the Gospel of John, we read that those leaders went to him and asked him, who are you or who do you claim to be? Immediately, without hesitation, John made it clear, I am not the Christ or the Messiah. So the leaders then asked, what then? Are you Elijah? John responded, I am not. Remember now, the Jews were looking for both Elijah and the Messiah. And so they attempted one more guess, and then they finally quit guessing and just asked John, who are you then, so that we can give an answer to those who sent us? That's referring to the religious council back in Jerusalem. John then quoted the prophecy of Isaiah, describing himself as a voice crying out in the wilderness to prepare the way for the Lord. My point is that John himself stated that he was not the person of Elijah, but as Jesus shared in Matthew eleven fourteen, John had come in the spirit of Elijah to fulfill the prophecy about Elijah. Well, then later in Matthew 17, which is actually the parallel account of what we're reading here in Mark 9, Jesus told the disciples that Elijah was indeed coming first and in fact had already come. Then they did to John whatever they wanted, which was to reject him and kill him. And Jesus added, they're going to do the same to me as the son of man. 
After that, in Matthew 17, 13, we read, then the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking to them about John the Baptist. John had fulfilled all three of the expectations that the Jews had about Elijah. First, he came before Messiah arrived. He had called the people to repentance from their sins in preparation for Messiah's arrival. And then he anointed Jesus the Messiah by baptizing him there in the Jordan River. Once again, John the Baptist was not the person of Elijah, but he had come in the spirit of Elijah to fulfill the prophecy about Elijah. You know, it's interesting that there's notable similarities between Elijah and John the Baptist. They both bought their clothes at the same department store made of animal hair with leather belts. Uh, Both of them were prophets. They both lived out in the wilderness. They both called people to repentance and they both confronted wicked rulers. I think one big difference is that John the Baptist performed no miracles while Elijah did many in his ministry. So then here's what all this meant. If the people had accepted Jesus as their Messiah, then John would have been accepted as well, and he and his ministry would have been the fulfillment of the Malachi prophecy about Elijah. But instead, they not only rejected Jesus as Messiah and killed him, before that they rejected John as the messenger and killed him. That's what Jesus meant here in verse 13 when he says, Elijah has also come and they did to him whatever they wanted. So then for those who believed in Jesus as Messiah at that time, John the Baptist would have been the fulfillment of Elijah coming. Again, he wasn't literally Elijah, but he came in the spirit of Elijah, preparing the way for those who believed. But the vast majority rejected John, and worse yet, as we know, they rejected Jesus. So that means that Elijah himself is still going to come in the future, again in fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy. Elijah will come before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, as I mentioned in our last message, we read in Revelation 11 of two witnesses who come from heaven and who appear around the midpoint of the tribulation period. The ministry of those two witnesses will be to prophesy, and their message will be, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. We're not given the identity of those two witnesses, but the miracles they will perform are those are the same as those of Moses and Elijah in the Old Testament. So I believe that Elijah, being one of those two witnesses, has a very high prob- probability of being the fulfillment of Malachi's prophecy about Elijah. Soon after that three and a half ministry, three and a half year ministry of those two witnesses comes to an end there during the tribulation, Jesus Christ will return at his second coming. So it fits the prophecy of Malachi and Elijah coming before the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Well, let's push on. Let's resume our reading as we go to, uh, looks like verse 14, please. And when Jesus came to the disciples, now this would be the other nine disciples down at the base of the mountain, he saw a great multitude around them and the scribes disputing with them. Immediately when they saw Jesus, all the people were greatly amazed and running to him, greeted him. And he asked the scribes, what are you discussing with them? Then one of the crowd answered and said, teacher, I brought you my son who has a mute spirit. And 
wherever it seizes him, it throws him down. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. So I spoke to your disciples, asking them to cast out the demon, but they could not. Jesus answered him and said, O faithless generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him to me. Then they brought him to Jesus, and when he saw him, immediately the spirit convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming at the mouth. So Jesus asked the father, how long has this been happening to him? And the father replied, from childhood, and often he has thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can believe, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that the people came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, deaf and dumb spirit, I command you, come out of him and enter him no more. Then the spirit cried out, convulsed him greatly and came out of him. And the boy became as one dead, so that many said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had come into the house, his disciples asked Jesus privately, why could we not cast the demon out? So he said to them, this kind can only come out by nothing except prayer and fasting. Well, as Christians, we use the word faith all the time, don't we? And we know that it's vital to our spiritual life. Depending on which translation you use, there's a few hundred uses of the word faith in the Bible or variations of it. But how would we define or describe faith? Well, Hebrews 11.1 1 puts it this way, what is faith? It is the confident assurance that what we hope for is going to happen. It is the evidence of things we cannot yet see. A few verses later in Hebrews 11.6, it also adds the key fact that without faith, it is impossible to please God. Oswald Chambers described faith this way. He said, faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at this time. And you know, with a similar definition, Warren Wiersbe describes faith as confident obedience to God's word in spite of circumstances and, and consequences. And so faith is confidence and trust in God in spite of our circumstances, like Noah, who built the ark even though it had never rained before. It's also uh, confidence in spite of our feelings or emotions, like Ruth, who left her family and homeland to follow God. And it's in spite of the consequences, like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who refused to bow down in, face, uh, in the face of a fiery furnace. Here now, as Jesus and the three disciples made it down the mountain to join the others, a chaotic situation was underway. A desperate father had brought his demon-possessed son to those other nine disciples, asking them to deliver him from his possession, but the disciples were unable to, and the religious leaders seized upon that opportunity to verbally attack those disciples for their failure. Kind of reminds me of when Moses and Joshua went up the mountain in the book of Exodus where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, and when they left the people, everything was peaceful and in order, and then when they returned down the mountain, the people were dancing half-naked around a golden calf. Well, this situation wasn't quite that bad, but those nine disciples definitely had their hands full. 
For over two years now, those disciples had walked by sight, much more than by faith. They had been with Jesus on a daily basis. They, they heard his sermons. They witnessed him deliver demon-possessed people. They watched him cure diseases. They even saw him raise the dead. And don't forget, Jesus had also empowered them and sent them out to perform the same sort of ministry on their own. But here now, they were struggling in their faith, debating with the religious leaders, grappling with the desperate father, and powerless to deliver a demon-possessed boy. Up to this point, we've already seen how Mark's gospel is saturated with the reality of demonic possession. The same amount of demonic activity has been around since the beginning, and the number of demons never changes. But even so, we especially read about increased uh, demonic activity during the time of Jesus. And that's because the light of Christ came into the world and exposed the demonic darkness, and the light forced them out of hiding. You know, at our home, we have bi-monthly pest control service where they come and spray for insects around the outside of the house and around the yard, And oftentimes when they show up to perform that service, we won't have really noticed many bugs or insects. But after they spray, suddenly we see them coming out trying to escape death. The spray forces them out into the open. In the same way, the light of Jesus forced many demons out into the open as well. People ask if there's still demon possession and demonic activity going on in the world today. And the answer is, uh, hello, absolutely yes from drag queen shows forced upon little children to the opening act of the televised Grammy Awards show, it's not just still around, it's out in the open. Satan is no longer hiding in the world today. In fact, he's not even trying to hide. He's right out there in the open, and yet much of the world still doesn't see him. Now Jesus arrives at this chaotic scene at the base of the mountain, and in verse 16, he asks what's going on. Notice that the disciples didn't answer, neither did the religious leaders. Those leaders preferred to argue with the disciples rather than with Jesus. And the disciples didn't answer because they were embarrassed to have Jesus come back and find such chaos. Finally, a man, a father, speaks up and explains that he has brought his demon-possessed son to the disciples for deliverance, but they were unable to help. This boy was having seizures, causing his body to convulse and become rigid, as well as foaming at the mouth. The disciples' inability to deliver the boy from demonic possession then was the source of the debate that was taking place. Jesus responded with a rebuke about that generation being faithless, and the wording actually indicates that he was including everyone, the disciples, the crowd, that father, and the religious leaders. As the boy was brought to Jesus, the demons began to react violently. They caused the boy to slam down on the ground, convulsing and contorting. It's like the boy was being mauled by the demons from the inside. Make no mistake about this. When demons create this kind of violent behavior, they're attempting to kill that person. If they can produce a brain trauma or get the heart to stop, it could kill the boy. In verse 22, the father told Jesus about the demons throwing his son into the fire and trying to drown him in water. Satan's agenda then, carried out by his demonic minions, is always to kill and destroy. It's touching to see Jesus interacting with this distraught, desperate, 
helpless and hopeless father. And in verse 21, Jesus asks him, how long has this been happening to him? Well, for one, Jesus already knew the answer. And secondly, the length of time for this didn't really matter since Jesus could heal him instantly. Clearly, Jesus was wanting to draw the father out. Remember when Jesus met the woman at the well in John 4 and told her, go call your husband. And she said, I have no husband. And on went the conversation. Jesus was drawing her out at the well, and Jesus is drawing the father out here as well. Jesus knew that this father's faith was weak and struggling, but unlike the unsaved crowds, this man truly wanted to believe, and clearly he had some level of faith because he had brought his son to the disciples, believing they could help. In that regard, he's kind of like the desperate woman with the 12-year issue of blood, who after trying everything else, simply wanted to touch the hem of Christ's garment to receive healing power. But before healing that boy, Jesus continues working with the father's weak and struggling faith. At the end of verse 22, we read the anemic response of this weary father. If you can do anything, have compassion and help us. If you can do anything, he says to Jesus, Jesus created the heavens and the earth and put all the stars in their place. Notice then how Jesus puts this back on the father and says, if you can believe, all things are possible. It's not a lack of power on the part of Jesus. It's a lack of faith on the part of the people. Then verse 24 is so touching and heart-wrenching at the same time as the helpless father says through his tears, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. You know, it doesn't get more raw or honest than that. Notice in verse 25 that when Jesus saw people running towards him at this time, he acted quickly and delivered the poor boy from his demon possession. Seems to me that Jesus knew this frenzied crowd that was running towards him was not coming in belief, but coming to sort of see a sideshow as if the circus had just arrived. They didn't believe in the person of Jesus. They just wanted to see another miracle. So Jesus proceeded to rebuke the evil spirit and commanded it to leave the boy. And the demon convulsed him violently one final time in the process of leaving his body. It was so physically exhausting for that boy that as he laid there, it appeared as though he were dead. And this actually caused some in the crowd to assume that the boy had died. But as Jesus did with the daughter of Jairus, he took the child by the hand and raised him up. Jesus never met a demon he couldn't cast out or a disease he couldn't cure. This passage then closes with a private conversation when the nine disciples asked Jesus why they weren't able to cast out that particular demon. And Jesus explains that some demons are more powerful and resistant than others and that the situation required concerted prayer. Well, in our remaining moments then, let's highlight a few applicational truths together from this passage. Number one, the devil is alive and active. If you're wondering why everything is so upside down in the world today, then you're not seeing the obvious demonic agenda of Satan at work. Now, we definitely don't want to diminish or dismiss our own personal sin, but along with our fallen nature, this fallen world is being controlled by what the New Testament describes as the prince of the power of the air, also called the ruler of this world. The devil knows that time is running out, so he's not even trying to hide or be subtle. He's like way out there, right in the open. Number two, 
Faith comes from God, but we must cultivate our faith. One of the best ways to strengthen our faith is to remain consistent and committed to the Word of God. Remember, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. Back in Hosea 4.6, God warns that my people are being destroyed for lack of knowledge. When you feed your faith, your doubts and fears will starve to death. Number three, we see that all things are possible with God, but God is also sovereign. That is to say that while all things are possible with God, God sovereignly works in different ways for different reasons. And so the issue may not be a lack of faith, but rather that God's will has a different purpose. Remember the words of Oswald Chambers, faith is deliberate confidence in the character of God whose ways you may not understand at this time. We think of the Apostle Paul asking God three times to remove his affliction, and God said no, not because Paul lacked faith, but because God had a plan and a purpose for Paul's life that meant allowing his affliction to continue. Number four, don't neglect the priority of prayer. You know, when the disciples couldn't deliver that boy from his demon possession, Jesus explained to them that it required prayer. Prayer is not a postscript, it's a priority. And it's quite possible then, I think this is probably what was going on, that the disciples were at that point relying on their own power and their previous ministry success. Remember in their earlier ministry, the same nine disciples had been able to cast out demons in God's power. So it's quite possible they had become overconfident from their earlier ministry success, leading them to neglect prayer. And if we're not careful, we can easily make the same critical mistake. In describing the spiritual armor of God, Paul's last exhortation is to pray always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. Our spiritual victories must be exercised by faith and activated by prayer. Here's one final thing to consider. Faith means that we trust God's timing, we claim God's promises, and we rest in God's love. And so we pray the Lord to strengthen our faith. In Jesus' name, amen.